hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. And welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. This is your host, Jason. And who is my guest today? Hi, Joe. Hello. We have been spending the last six hours talking about the Daleks master plan. We are now up to episode 11, The Abandoned Planet. Now, this has been quite a story so far, Joe. The first two parts took place on the planet Kemble. Parts three and four were a gut-wrenching journey through space when you have the deaths of Katarina and Brett. Parts five and six are a bizarre, wacky adventure on the planet Myra with invisible aliens called Visians. They should be called Invisians. And we've just wrapped up a four-part sequel to The Chase and The Time Meddler at the same time. And we've had a Christmas special and a New Year's Day special. And then what did you think about the material at the Great Pyramid? I thought it was underwritten and disappointing. I wanted to see an ancient Egypt historical and not have the Great Pyramid used as comedy window dressing. I mean, I'm bloody exhausted. We've been all around the bloody universe with this story. Honestly, I'm knackered. But ah. we are now we are now coming to the end, Joe. We are coming to the last two episodes on the planet Kemble, and nothing will ever be the same again. Indeed. Now, look, I know you're being facetious right now. I know you are, are taking a piss. But, I mean, we may as well have been talking about the Dalek Master Plan for the amount we've talked about the Gobbleus in this story. <laughs> <laughs> we have talked more about Jackie Lane than we've talked about poor Sarah Sutton. To be fair, no, wait, we've covered Janet Fielding, we've covered Chris Rage Bidmead, Anthony Ainley, Matthew Waterhouse, Tom Baker. Like, we've talked about the constituent elements of this story, haven't we? John Fraser, Tom Georgeson. We've talked about everything but Sarah Sutton. Oh, should we? Well, I think we should start there then. Uh, well, well, let's go into the episode and then we can talk about Sarah Sutton. All right, I'll count us down. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Three, two, one. Countdown to the end of the universe. Countdown to the end of the universe. So I'll tell you my origin story. So Legopolis was not obviously oh, my on, first. Before you start, did you mean uh -oh. your, pers your personal origin story? Well, we've talked about the origin story of the script. Yes, my personal origin story. How how Legopolis came to be my favorite episode. Oh, sorry. I thought you were meant you were going to talk about a day. How old are you? How old am I? I'm 24. <laughs> 24 years ago, when Mr. and Mrs. Miller decided to go at it in their bedroom one night. Sorry. Go on. My parents have been divorced for 35 years, and now you've scarred me for life with that image. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Please tell me your Legopolis origin story, not your birth story. Oh, my goodness. So, as you know, I came into the show with season 20, but I had two friends at school who uh, were Doctor Who fans. They're the ones who encouraged me to watch the show. Mm -hmm. This is my friends, John and Stephen. They're both still friends, and I still see them, even though they live in, they live in other states every so often. Um, John was a collector of the novelizations, and he was the reason why I started collecting the books hmm. so one day he brought the novelization of Legopolis to school and I started reading it during a free period and I probably got about as far as chapter five or chapter six and I hadn't read the novelizations before at this point at age 11 my reading habits mostly consisted of choose your own adventure books the, the Hardy Boys uh, monthly issues of Baseball Digest I wasn't reading a lot of science fiction but getting into the Legopolis book, from that point on, there was really no turning back. 
and all I wanted out of life itself was to have my own copy of the Logopolis novelization. So my parents and I struck a deal. I would babysit my kid's sister after school every day, so they wouldn't have to pay for a babysitter anymore. And they would pay me $3 a week. This was 1985 cash, $3. It wasn't even minimum wage to babysit my kid's sister. And the novelizations were two ninety five a piece. So I would get one book a week. So every other Saturday, we'd go to the local mall, the Mid-Island Mall in Nassau County, New York. And we'd go to the Walden Books, which is an now-defunct bookseller's chain. And I would stand in front of the, the wall, which had two full shelves of novelizations. And I waited months for Legopolis to come back into stock because I was you know, too shy to ask the cashier to special order. I would just buy two or three of whatever was in front of me, which was always a difficult choice. And to this day, I mentioned this on the Trap One Target episode, I still have dreams about standing in bookstores, staring at shelves and shelves of books, trying to get novelizations that I've never seen before. But Legopolis finally showed up, and my copy is now battered because I've read it, probably, at a conservative estimate, 25 or 30 times. And uh, as good as the TV story is... We're about to lose John Fraser here. The book is even better. But all this is to say is Legopolis didn't cycle back around on PBS for another 13 months after I started watching the show. So it was going to air the week between Christmas and New Year's 1985. And, of course, we were going to be out of town. We were taking a family trip into Manhattan. And we were going to be staying at the Hyatt Regency Hotel on 42nd Street next to Grand Central Station. And we were there for a family gathering and to, and to see a particular pl off-Broadway play that was playing down on 2nd Avenue. So I'll pause. What do you think of John Fraser's death scene there? You said before that it was very underplayed. It is underplayed. Um, it's, well, it's massively high concept, isn't it? Essentially, the death of the universe has just killed him. And when the master goes, oh, my God, that's horrible then you know the shit has hit the fan, right? And the master runs away saying, I can't deal with this. Yeah. Uh, in, in the book, he was supposed to walk up to the roof of the building and cross over to the aerial and program in the coordinates to the CVE that way. Then he fell through a hole in the roof. It's wonderful. The entropy had already caught him, so instead of falling and breaking his neck, he fell slowly like a feather and disintegrated in a, in a cloud of dust. And that was unfilmable. That's the way he goes in the novelization, falling and exploding in a cloud of dust. Well, I'd say they did the best that they could under the circumstances. It's they, visually striking. It's visually striking. Was it you or a Jack on uh, the Nine Might Be Praised who thought that he had been erased from history? Well, he's been erased from the universe, hasn't he? He's, that's it. He's gone. He hasn't been. He's, he's, he's disintegrated. He hasn't been erased from history as if he no longer exists, but he, he's dead. It's just a way of dying. But don't you think it's marvellous how the master uh, figured he could come to Legopolis and hold the whole universe to ransom and, and you know, uh, as part of one of his dastardly schemes. He had literally no clue what he was cocking up. And now he's running off. Now the shit's hit the fan. So look at this scene right here. We are in Manhattan. So I set my VCR to tape Channel 21 every night at 7 o'clock when they aired Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. So I get home and all I want we get home after New Year's, all I want is to see part four of Logopolis. Part two plays, I watch part two, wonderful. Part three plays, wonderful. Part four plays, they had switched over to pledge drives, and a pledge drive had delayed 
the broadcast. So I got, instead of all of part four, I got the last 10 minutes of part three, some pledge make material, some pledge break material, I should say, and the first five minutes of part four. And it ends right here as uh, Adric goes, he's disabling the entire coordinate subsystem. So I didn't get to see the last 20 minutes of Logopolis part four, and I didn't get to see the regeneration because of, it wasn't so much a VCR malfunction, but it was a program, programming error at channel 21. So they aired part three and four together and they didn't air part four in the right time slot. And I missed it. And it was probably another year or two before I finally got to see Tom Baker regenerate. I'm Remember, this is before YouTube. It's before, you know, I can really borrow a copy of, of the VHS or buy it or have the DVD. I had to wait a long time. So that last scene of Logopolis was the holy grail for me. I'm guessing you were not a happy bunny. The only other worse VCR malfunction, I think I mentioned this on the Nylon Be Praised, when my copy of The Five Doctors cut out as Barusa is putting the ring on his finger, and I missed the last five minutes after that. Why is it during these massive stories like it's never during terminus is it or during fall to doomsday no i would have been thrilled if my vcr had exploded in the middle of time in the ronnie i wouldn't have cared less but for me it's always the stuff that i love and that i want to see over and over again that i lose don't you come on here with your hatred for tetraps all right oh okay so um... I, I have never said a bad word about the tetraps on your podcast good <laughs> um what were we saying? I, might, I was going to say something, you know, that was going to give you an epiphany in life. And now it's gone out of my head because we started talking about tetraps. Um, I do like, I like the contrast now and all these scenes on Earth. And I really like in a minute all the location work of them dashing about. Do you know why? Because they're actually having a bit of fun. And I think that's one thing this story lacks at times. It's a bit dry as dust, isn't it? Whereas they start having a bit of a run around and, and some fun in episode four. And you've got some fabulous... Uh, faux 70s Paddy Kingsland music playing in the background like -na 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 -na, bum, 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 bum. you know it's really fun I'm but going I, to oh, hang on. disagree oh, with you really that's a new look for you I'm, I'm shocked that I even have the temerity to say the words I would I would say the story is serious I wouldn't say it's dry as dust because the line readings and the dialogue the individual words are very witty it's just in service of a downbeat story. So it's not laugh-out-loud comedy like City of Death. So it's not uninteresting. It's not dull. No, no, I'm not uh, saying it's dull, but this story is like attending a fucking wake before he's even died. Um, well, that's, 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 yeah, that's probably a better way of saying it than dry as dust. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize if I was giving a, a negative reading to what I, I, I meant it in a positive way. Let's just say it's um, thoughtful then, shall we, and uh, considerate. Thoughtful and considerate. And you wouldn't get that in the Sayward years. Sayward would never be this introspective. He would just have bloody violence and he would have the doctor making inappropriate jokes. There's a couple, I'd say, that are thoughtful. I think parts of Planet of Fire, parts of Enlightenment. Uh... Oh, Enlightenment is so gorgeous. We talked about that on the Nymon show. But what, I want to talk to you about this scene now, because I think this is one of the best scenes in the entirety of Classic Who. And it's entirely due to Sarah Sutton's performance. And we did want to talk about Sarah Sutton. What's happening is so enormous. We're seeing a picture of the universe <laughs> to scale on the TARDIS scanner. 
literally being eaten away by entropy and expressed through Sarah Sutton's performance. And then she realizes that her home planet has been destroyed and she very subtly like underplays the grief that she experiences in that moment. What I love about it is it's massively high concept. It is beautiful and it's a marvelous piece of acting as well. I, I think it I think it is one of the best moments in Doctor Who this. It's funny that you mentioned that because you compare it to what Jacob Anderson was doing in the first episode of Flux when he's sitting there in Outpost Rose and he's watching the Flux destroy planets in front of him. It's almost the same scene, but he's playing it in a modern day sensibility. Nissa is playing it with quiet hurt. Like she's going to burst into tears. Just wouldn't get this reading of this scene nowadays. They'd have to make it exciting yeah. and, and, you know, like, well, God, we're running away from the end of the universe. Whereas this is just a thoughtful moment. But it's huge when you think of the concept of entire worlds being eaten up. And it's all channeled through her performance. I and look at how Grimwade is pushing the camera into her face. You compare it to Ron Jones. This is a true story, Joe. Ron Jones was a director for three years before he learned that cameras could zoom. If you watch his earlier stories, he never, ever moves the camera once. You're a terrible Whereas here, we're, here we are getting into Nissa's face as she's about to cry and the music is playing up. But, you know, some actors, yeah, would shy away from that. Or wouldn't be able to do it. Janet Fielding earlier in this story, the camera's straight in her straight in her face when she has to go like, you know, we're going to Earth, and she's like, eh! and it's just horrendous. Whereas Sarah Sutton is completely unabashed by that camera right in her face. I am now going to invite you, Joe. I am inviting you I'm to coming. the next Li Who. This is November 2022 on the eastern end of Long Island. Mm -hmm. So you fly into JFK. Mm -hmm. I'll pick you up from the airport. I'll bring you out to uh, my palatial estate in Brooklyn. And then we'll drive all the way out to Long Island. Next year, this year, L.I. Who, the convention was called Time Flight. L.I. Who presents Time Flight. Next year, it's L.I. Who presents Meglos. And the two guests they've already announced are going to be Peter Davison and your friend and mine, Janet Fielding. And I'm going to have you go up to Janet at an autograph session or a photo session, and you will imit you will do your best Tegan impression, and we'll see how long it takes her to slug you in the jaw. Can't we do a live commentary at the convention? How amazing would that be? You and me going at each other. Oh, that would be amazing. Come on, well, wing it, wing it. You know people, sort it out. Um, I also love the fact that in that exchange there, I said I'm coming and you said you're going to have your way with me. I mean, this relationship between you and me is getting out of hand, I'm telling you now, all right? Oh, my wife is sitting two rooms over doing work and she has no idea what we're talking about. She has no idea. We're in a hot affair with <laughs> podcaster across the world. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yeah. Here we go. We're going to listen to music now. I might have to turn it up. It's so much fun. Hang on. So... Look at Tom Baker's pained expression as he walks away. Here's the corresponding scene in the novelization, uh, page 121. Actually, so it's a little bit, uh, sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead. This is actually beyond the scene we just saw. But this is an interesting, interesting bid me prose. Mm -hmm. Page 121. 
From the door of the TARDIS, the Watcher had seen the Master retracing his steps to the computer room, as he saw now the Doctor's perilous ascent of the Pharos antenna. These were the conditions of the moment he knew had to come. In his mind was a clock, its hands closing in on the inevitable vertical of midnight. And that's Bigme's way of showing us that the Watcher knows the Doctor is about to die, and that's the moment he's waiting to be born. Do you know what? I think I feel as if um, we may have reached um, peak podcasting here, having you reading out that excerpt from the Logopolis novel whilst Paddy Kingsland's faux 70s music was playing in the background. I can't wait to listen to this, you know? It's going to be amazing. How many times do you run across the street and your mind is going, waka chicka, waka chicka, waka chicka? I've got to turn it up. You ready? Here we go. Ready? Yep. It's so much fun. It is. It's great. And, and, and on the soundtrack that my friend made for me years ago on audio cassette, I would just play this over and over again, like I said. Do you not think uh, the TARDIS as well? Do you see the TARDIS in the background there? Sunlit. Yeah. Gorgeous. Now, you compare it to the way that Barry Letts filmed the same location as director in Terror of the Autons. This is a much more visually exciting story. Yeah. Although, let's not be too hard. Like, techniques change in a decade, right? Like... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. I just said Barry Letts. You said let's not be too hard. Oh, Joe, Joe. Come on. What did I tell you about puns? Barry. Well, kinky puns. That's my thing, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, As you man. said about John Fraser on the Nymon show, yeah, you you want to uh, uh, add to the monitor, subtract from him, insert digits. <laughs> oh my god, that's my peak podcasting moment there. Um, so this is this is great because this is supposed to be like it's almost like Reichenbach Falls, isn't it? Except it's a Doctor Who version of that. They go up to a really high location, they have a, a showdown, and then like the Doctor's hanging and falls. It's basically that, isn't it? And it's almost intentional because, remember, uh, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix pitched him specifically as the Doctor's Moriarty. Hmm. So it, it works. And then, of course, they, they talk about it again as recently as Spyfall Part 2. You didn't say it with the accent then, Jason. You've got to say it with the accent. My, my, my British accent is useless. I, I just speak in pure Brooklyn. If you're from Brooklyn, you can't do other accents. I went home and then I came in the next day and said to Barry... What we need is a Moriarty. Uh, so, that's a very good Terence Dix. Thank you very much. Um, this this whole thing about what on earth is going on, all this technobabble, oh, I don't have a bloody clue. They basically could have just said, look, the universe is going to go boom when I press this button. If take, the gift of Christopher H. Bidmead is that if Technobabble is delivered by actors of this caliber, you believe it, even if you don't always catch the exact meaning of all the words. But can I let you in on a little secret? I thought you already had. But yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Another one. I prefer the Technobabble of Douglas Adams, personally, because it is, um, it's almost taking a piss out of the Technobabble of Chris Bidmead, i.e. it's so overblown, it all sounds so ridiculous, and yet, the Technobabble of um, Douglas Adams is rooted in real science as well, but taken to a, like an extreme of fun. The funny thing is, Ter uh, Douglas Adams wasn't sitting out to make fun of science. There's a comment that he wrote on the script for Nyamon 
saying, can we at least pretend we know what a black hole is? He was frustrated by, by the bad pseudoscience. Binmead himself made some mistakes. Like in, in Leisure Hive, Romana is talking about a FIFO stack. It's actually a FIFO queue. The stack is a LIFO stack. So Binmead kind of got it wrong. But he was he, he had the right idea. He was trying to put all these computer terms into the show. I don't so, know what a technocophica is, which they mention in State of Decay, but I love the sound of a uh, conceptual geometer. Now that sounds uh-huh. right. Did I tell you the story about the State of Decay novelization? Because we know that Dix and Bidmead hated each other. Oh. And we know that one of the last things Terrence Dix ever wrote was that letter to DWM attacking Bidmead for the stuff Bidmead said about him on one of the documentaries. Really? In the novelization of State of Decay, Bidmead, uh, sorry, Terrence Dix adds a line to Bidmead's script. So when Romana goes, what's a technocathica? The doctor goes, I think it means a museum of technology, but on the other hand, I might have made it up. And that <laughs> is Dix throwing shade at Bidmead in 1982. Love it, love it. Well, no, we've said before that Christopher H. Bidmead is um, is a bit of a genius and created a, you know, a very robust season of Doctor Who. He can't touch Terrence Dix. I'm sorry. If that's going to be a Harry Hill-style fight, Terrence Dix is going to win that, hands down. Terrence Dix is a genius of massive proportions. I like them both, and I wish they would get along. Now, look at Ainley's performance in the scene. He sarcastically brushes dust from the doctor's shoulder. Now he's being serious. He's very good in this scene. He's going to go over the top in a minute, but he's very serious when he needs to be. Jason? Hi, Joe. You know that How you doing? pressure eliminator that's silhouetted very strongly there against the light? Yes. I've got a big dildo that looks like that. Why has he got such a rude-looking weapon? Uh, <laughs> I come in here I try to elevate the discourse I try to talk about Jackie Lane, I read you from a book I speak in soft measured tones and here you are getting excited at a prop well the things you could do with that TCE I'm telling you, sorry this is very important things are happening, stop diverting me and talking about sexy things this okay. is where my shortcomings as a straight cisgender white male come into play I would have no idea what to do with that thing we'll talk off camera <laughs> okay, okay, we're, coming, we're coming to the regeneration now let's get out of the bedroom for a moment uh, just for a moment oh look he's doing the button pushing <laughs> yep here we go it's so over the top I love it oh my god okay on the Blu-ray, right? Did you not think that this whole sequence on the Blu-ray, the new effects, was amazing? I'm not the kind of person who holds Doctor Who's effect against it. I realize I'm watching archival, archival footage of a dead show. Hang on. Hang on, though. It is called television. So the visual element is important. Yes, but we're watching... Most TV is old. Most TV is black and white. Most TV is technically no longer relevant when we watch stuff we're watching stuff that could no longer be made today i don't mind watching bad effects as long as the acting and the dialogue are good yes i i don't watch all of the blu-ray special video features i don't watch all the updated effects i have watched the legopolis one and i think it is gorgeous mm. but if i had a choice as i'm doing right now i'm watching the original version of the story i am watching the original effects right now not, 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 not the new ones I tend to agree with you. I just think sometimes they they 
managed to realize what was in like you know what was supposed to be on the screen then they do they managed to get that right and they said definitely do with this one. Oh, here we go flashback I love this. All the bad guys coming in to taunt him at his moment of extremist. There's the, the pirate captain. Davros. Jason, you shall <laughs> die for this! <laughs> oh my god, here we go. Yeah, no, wait, but you see, this bit in a minute where the dolly was hanging and then his arm falls. It's staged differently on the novelization. It's staged... Uh, better mm. but the idea of his hand falling off and that's how you see him die in the original version there's no stick figure of him falling to the ground in the version that i'm watching I you don't the, actually see the body fall the doctor's just fallen to his death and the master just off center stage with a little giggle well he'll, he'll be back in 45 seconds of story time for cast revolver part one okay i'm going to be serious for a second because i think this is beautifully staged this regeneration and the music, the music, my God, the way the music is going down the scale over and over again. And just the way the camera was coming down as well. It's unusually shot for Doctor Who, isn't it? Like, thoughtfully shot. And Grimway was on the floor for this, wearing his black and white checked flannel shirt. He was there, literally right next to the actors as they're recording this. Yeah, he was there saying, if I tell you to beckon, you beckon. All right. It was funny watching the pilgrimage and pinpointing all the moments and all the stories where all those clips come from. That line is the end, but the moment has been prepared, prepared for. Gosh. The only thing I the only line I wish was excised was Mr. going, he was the doctor all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the miracles of post-production. Oh yeah. But like we and need this, this explanation. Is... Pip and Jane Baker could have written this, and it was so obvious. Is this the most brilliantly, beautifully realized regeneration of them all? I'd say it's the most interestingly realized. Yeah, for sure. Caves gives it a run, but this is probably my favorite. Although Peter Davison's double chin there reminds me of my COVID weight gain. <sighs> oh my! And word. I love that there's no Doctor Face in the closing credits anymore. It's just a blank void where the face used to be. And John Fraser gets second billing. How awesome is that? Jason, we have been, I feel as if in this podcast, we've been all around the universe ourselves. We've been all around Doctor Who. We've taken a little detour to the bedroom. We've come back to Doctor Who again. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. And we've talked about a little bit a fair amount, but we've talked about a lot of the key players um, and their contributions to Doctor Who as a whole. I'm going to ask you now to be completely focused and give me three recommendations for Logopolis. Three things. You mean three things to recommend about Logopolis? Thank you. You said that a lot more proficiently. Yes. The script. It is some gorgeous lines of dialogue, which I repeat over and over again in my daily life. Mm -hmm. John Fraser's performance as the monitor, which is subtle and underplayed and worried and poignant. And lastly, this is Tom Baker's last episode as the Doctor, and he is finding new depths to the character that he's never showed us before. It is an acting class, and maybe we didn't talk about Tom Baker as much as we should have, but just watching Tom Baker go through this story, it makes you weep. Imagine if we had season eight of Tom Baker with Bidmead script editing and Adric and Delore Whiteman as companions. That would have been perhaps a great season 19. 
he does look as a man who's ready to go. He could have given us more. Yeah, oh, definitely. Like, imagine uh, Dolores giving that line reading. Hey, he was a doctor all the time. <laughs> <That would've> been... <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to add three more. So I'm going to throw in um, Paddy Kingdon's score, which mm-hmm. is terrific throughout. Um, I mean, I'm doing general things there, but Peter Grimway's direction as a whole, because I think he has a, a masterful handle over the tone of the piece. Um, and as much as it pains me to say, because he's literally going to get a hard on by me saying this, Christopher H. Bridmead's script, which I was wrong 16 years ago. I'm saying it now to you. I was wrong. He has written a very good script. It's a little bit messy structurally, I think, but with massive concepts, terrific dialogue, and a sense of momentum, which climaxes on one of the most memorable set pieces ever in Doctor Who. There you have it, Joe. Thank you for coming on Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. <laughs> thank you for retracting your opinion from 17 years ago. We can both agree Legopolis is one of the great stories. Good night, everybody. <laughs>